This morning, we are going to return to the book of Exodus. Um, If you have a Bible, I want you to open it to Exodus chapter 3. A month ago, I looked at the beginning of Exodus, and we saw this uh, scene, this moment of, of great suffering. We saw the people of Israel under slavery, under Pharaoh, and he was uh, effectively ethnic cleansing, genocide, infanticide as the baby boys were being killed. And we saw these great Hebrew midwives uh, walking in faithfulness, not fearing Pharaoh, but fearing the living God. So we saw the suffering of the people of Israel. And today we're going to look at Exodus chapter 3 and chapter 4, and we're going to see the moment when God announces his emancipation, that he has seen the suffering of the people of Israel, and he will bring them freedom. He will bring them out of Egypt and into the promised land. Now, it's a long passage, so I've asked Ed to come up and read this to us. Hopefully I'm not going to make it all go wrong with the microphone. Um, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1 to 15, and uh, chapter 4, verse 1 to 17. Do stay with Ed as he reads this, because it's really important. No pressure then, Jeremy. Okay, starting from verse 1. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord said, sorry, saw that he turned aside to see, God called out to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you were standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hittites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you might bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve the God, serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel. 
the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout the generations. And if you could turn as well to chapter 4, we're going to read down to verse 17. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So so he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and he caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again, the Lord said to him, put your your hand inside your cloak, and he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. But Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I'm not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now therefore, go. And I will be with your mouth and teach you what to speak. But he said, O my Lord, please send someone else. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses, and he said, Is there not Aaron, your brother, the Levite? I know that he can speak well. Behold, he is coming out to meet you. And when he sees you, he will be glad in his heart. You shall speak to him and put the words in his mouth. And I will be with your mouth and with his mouth and will teach you both what to do. He shall speak for you to the people and he shall be your mouth and you shall be as God to him. And take in your hand his staff with which you shall do the signs. So we have it. The people of Israel are in great suffering And here we have the great announcement of emancipation. The Lord has heard their suffering and is coming to bring them deliverance, coming to bring them the freedom that they have longed for. And we have here a really unlikely scenario. This is a kind of remarkable scene. It's the the moment described often by the, the, the fact that the Lord is speaking to Moses in the burning bush. It's remarkable for a number of reasons. First of all, that the Lord appears to Moses, that he speaks to him. This is obviously remarkable. Anytime in Scripture we see these kind of profound moments of the presence of God and he hears the voice of the Lord. You see that by Moses' response when he is fearful. He cannot, uh, 
he hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. So it's remarkable for uh, the fact that he's hearing the voice of God. It's remarkable for this moment of emancipation, for the news that God is coming to bring them freedom. Think about how that would have made you feel as an Israelite. Your people have suffered for hundreds of years and, they, and, and they've cried out to the Lord. And here they are hearing, here's Moses hearing, the Lord has heard your suffering. He is coming to bring you deliverance. Moses should be delighted. And perhaps he is as he, as he kind of hears the initial news that God is brought, going to bring a deliverance. But then verse 10 comes in, in chapter 3, and this is the bombshell. He says, come, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring out my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. Now, you've got to understand just how crazy this sounds to Moses. First of all, who is Moses? Well, he was a man who, who, who grew up in Pharaoh's house. Remember, he was picked out of the, of the river and, and, and raised by uh, Pharaoh's daughter. So he's a prince in some sense in the, in the land. He was a he, of Hebrew lineage. But then 40 years previous to this moment, he had gone and uh, he had murdered an Egyptian who was, who, had, who was assaulting one of his own people. And so he heard that Pharaoh might hear about this. And so he'd fled to Midian. So we're talking about an 80-year-old man. Maybe once upon a time, he was a mighty prince. But now he's just a shepherd. And he's not even, by the way, a shepherd of his own sheep. He's looking after the sheep of his father-in-law. This is no patriarch. This is just a, a man looking after some sheep. He's deserted his people, and, and, we'll, and we'll hear a little bit more about him. But you've got to just hear for a moment, this is like God saying to, to a, a builder, you know, some of, someone of no repute, go to the prime minister, who, by the way, is a despot, who's a, you know, an autocrat, who, who's, committed, who's called for the genocide of your people, go to him and tell him to let your people go. And you've just got to think, Moses is thinking at this point, how? How on earth can I do that? You've got to understand that the, the Hebrews would have been absolutely essential to the Egyptian economy. We're talking one million people probably, plus. Um, so it's kind of the idea that it's like going to the prime minister and saying, can your nation do without electricity? Or can you do without oil? Like he, he's kind of saying, can you do without that great natural resource that you have? of which the, the, the pharaoh would, would most likely just laugh him out of the room and then probably have him killed for just the impertinence of such an idea. And we'll see that that is basically pharaoh's response, a scoffing. Who is this God who tells me to release the people? So, so it's, it's remarkable what he's saying. And finally, there's another reason why I think Moses should doubt that he can do this, why he, why he would feel a great sense of uh, inadequacy, because he's telling him to go and lead his own people now, this is a man who was raised in it under the Egyptian authorities, who's fled to Midian, who's, who's, who's actually in some senses uh, rejected the ways of his people. In the sense, not rejected is too strong, but he's certainly not following in the ways of his people. Look how he doesn't, uh, later on at the end of chapter 4, we'll see that he hasn't even circumcised his son. Now, if you're not circ- you know, to be a person of Israel under the Abrahamic covenant and not circumcise your son, well, that's a pretty big deal. So, the, so we can kind of get the impression that he's almost forgotten his heritage. And, now he, and, and, and remember his, how his people responded when he murdered that Egyptian. He then goes on in chapter 2 to, um, to tell them to... Uh, tell, he's telling a, a guy off for, for something. And the, and the guy says, Who made you a prince and a judge over us? And that, so it's essentially he's been rejected by his own people. He's fled. He's forgotten who he is. And he's, and he's 80 years old. He's kind of damaged goods. He's a failure. He's a murderer. He's no man of great repute. You know, you think of Moses, you think of this great patriarch. This, I think at this moment, you've got to see him at a moment of weakness. 
And yet God has not forgotten Moses. But what is Moses' response then to God? And you'll see this throughout the dialogue. You'll see actually Moses is coming out of fear. Four times we see either a question or a statement where Moses is essentially uh, explaining his fear. See the first response. He says, verse 11, who am I that I should go? Who am I that I should go and and tell these people to do this? He's speaking of his own inadequacy. He's saying, how can I go and tell Pharaoh, this despot, this autocrat, to release my people? That's the first question. Then in in verse 13, we kind of get a sense maybe of his inability. He says, uh, basically saying he won't have anything to say. He says, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? What shall I say to them? How will I tell them who you are? What can I say? So he's struck by his inability. Then we see he's, he's, he's worried about his ineffectiveness. Chapter 4, what, verse 1. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. For they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. He's saying they're not going to listen to me. So he's got his inadequacy, his inability, his uh, ineffectiveness. And then finally, in verse 10, He's worried that he cannot speak. The very man who God is telling, you are going to be my mouthpiece, cannot speak. He says, I am not eloquent, verse 10, I am slow of speech and of tongue. You want me to be my mouth, your mouthpiece, God? I cannot speak. And this crescendos, these kind of four complaints or questions, crescendo in verse 13 of chapter 4 when he says, Oh my Lord, please send someone else. Here I am, Lord. Is there someone else available? <laughs> you know, he's, he's not embracing it. And you can see that in the Lord's response in verse 14. No wonder the Lord is angry. So then the anger of the Lord was kindled against Moses. Moses is looking at himself and saying, who am I? Don't you know how inadequate I am? Don't, I have got no ability to speak. The people probably won't listen to me. I don't even know how to say who you are. He's struck by, himself, by his own inadequacy. So this is a moment of great commissioning, and this is a moment of great fear. And I want to suggest to you this morning that we, as the people of God, are often in exactly the same situation as Moses in this passage. Actually, before I do, I just want to say one thing, which is, isn't it fascinating how the Bible is honest about leaders' inadequacies? You know, we, 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 we're familiar, you don't have to really watch the news very much, but occasionally you hear of these Christian celebrities, Christian leaders, who are total to either fail, fall from grace, some sin and indiscretion, or actually turn out to be complete wolves. Don't turn out to be completely not the people you thought they would be. And at that moment, it's damaging for the flock. People look at it and go, how could I have trusted this Christian leader? You know, you might have been online and listened to their sermons or whatever, and you think, oh gosh, when you hear about what they've done, or you think, that's impossible, how, how can I reconcile this? And what I want to say is really interesting is the Bible is, is not um, sentimental about the character of, the, of those who lead the people of God. Again and again, we see the great indiscretions of those who are called to, be, to lead the people of God. David was an adulterer who, who used his power to bring about his own sexual desires. Uh, Moses, we see, is a murderer and, a fa- and, and now he's fearful. Think about Paul and Barnabas in the New Testament, how they have a, a dispute and split at one point over whether to take John Mark with them over his fears. Even we see Peter, this great, who becomes a great leader, but is, the beginning of his walk with Christ is emotional and kind of up and down and uh, short-tempered. The Bible is not sentimental about human nature. 
It's not good when we see our human leaders fail That's a great, and sometimes commit great evil in the name of God. That's awful and it's a tragedy. But in one sense, we shouldn't be surprised when we see that because we do see the grim reality of human nature in the Bible. But anyway, let, let me go back then to the big picture here. We are seeing a call, we are seeing a commission, a great calling from God, and yet we also see great fear. And I want to suggest to you that we are in exactly the same situation. We have received a great commission by God and yet often undermined by fear, passivity, and guilt. Notice what, God, what, what is Moses calling? To go to a people in slavery, to go to a people in slavery and tell them the news of redemption, and if they listen to him and respond, they can find freedom and flourishing and, you, and enjoy, enjoy, enjoy the presence of God. And if they ignore him, they can remain in slavery. Isn't this the great call of the Christian life now that we are called to go out into a world of people who are trapped in the slavery of sin? who are walking in darkness, walking under their own self-destructive cycles, controlled by sin, controlled by idolatries of all sorts, whether it be the desire to be significant and successful that then leads to destroying themselves with a a pattern of working or all sorts of different passions of the flesh that ultimately lead to self-destruction. They're saying, no, you as the people of God have a message, have have a news that redemption has come. You have a calling to bring some news of redemption to these people such that they might respond and find freedom. This is Moses' calling to bring the news of redemption and so it is the calling of the people of God. We've been given this great commission just just as when Moses uh, is given that, that, that news in verse 10 where he says, I'm sending you so the people of God are sent ones. Moses is sent, Christ is the great apostle of the faith, and it's how he's described in Hebrews chapter 3. He is the great sent one, that's what it means. Um, And so the people of God have been sent out into the world on a commission to go and make disciples. This is our identity. It's not just something, we're not just kind of people who do individual religious acts, or kind of individual, like an individual Christian faith. No, we are the sent people of God. We've been sent on a mission. This is absolutely fundamental to our identity. See, in uh, John chapter 20, when, Moses, uh, sorry, when Jesus appears to the disciples as he's been resurrected, and he says, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. We are part of the people of God who've been sent to make Christ famous in this world. And this is a critical part of our communal identity. It's actually fundamental to our calling as followers of Christ. Back in Mark's gospel, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, I find it absolutely fascinating that Jesus goes to, uh, I can't remember which disciples it is, but he, uh, he says to them, come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Come and follow me and I will make you fishers of men. He's saying, if you follow me, you're being called to fish for men. Those two are inextricably linked. You cannot be a disciple and kind of rule out or ignore the great calling to make disciples. It's absolutely centrally connected with what it means to follow Christ. See again at the end of Matthew's gospel, sorry, at the beginning of Mark's, see at the end of Matthew's gospel in Matthew 28, when he, speak, when he gives them the great commission, just like this moment almost, where he says to them, go and make disciples of all na- in, in every nation. Um, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. It's the pattern that we see exploding in the book of Acts. We see the church, the, the, the book of Acts is our one, well, I suppose the rest of the New Testament as well, but you see this great example of the church going out 
going out into the world, proclaiming this news and seeing lives transformed. This is central to who we are. This is not a side project. It's not something we do a couple of hours a week or something we don't do but we feel we should do, not just for the enthusiasts. This is who we are. It comes back to our communal identity. What is the church? Different people use different metaphors for the church. You might think of it like a hospital, like those who are he- um, in wounded can kind of come and receive healing or maybe it's like a classroom, like it's a place where people are taught. Both those things are true. But I would suggest to you the, the kind of the picture you should have in your mind when you think about what the church is, is like a battleship. The people of God on the agenda of God about his mission, taking his name, taking the news of redemption into the world. Yes, there's healing. Yes, there's a kind of, you know, a, a, a part of the ship where people are being heal, healed and built up. Yes, there's a part of the ship where people are being taught and, and being equipped. But it's all with the agenda of being about God's mission and um, making him famous in the world. Because this is the very character of God. God has come into the world and spoken, revealed himself, and desires to make a people for himself, desires to draw all people to himself, and he sent the church on that great mission and purpose. And I suspect that many of us, our vision of church is therefore too passive. We think of church, we think of our Christian life, potentially just in this room on Sundays, or maybe our individual devotion to the Lord in our rooms at home. But what we're missing is this kind of vital muscle, this outward focused element of the Christian life of going about the business of making disciples in the world. And yet we are fearful, just like Moses. You heard Moses' complaint. I just thought it was amazing. When I read this passage, I was just struck by how Moses' fears are our fears. Who am I to tell other people about you? (laughs) Haven't you seen my struggle with sin? I can't be used by you. I'm inadequate for the task. I won't have all the answers. What will I say when they ask me? How many times have you said that to yourself? Or, they won't listen to me. That's what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. They won't listen to me. How many times have you, oh, I should say, no, I won't say anything. They're just going to, they'll ignore, they'll think I'm crazy. They won't be interested. Or even I'm slow of mouth and speech. I can't, I don't have the words to say. That's the evangelist over there, not me. So I just think it's fascinating how this text written, what Moses said, written literally thousands of years ago, speaks exactly to where we are today. So I want, to hear, I want us to hear God's response to Moses this morning. What does God say to Moses? He doesn't tell him, don't worry Moses, you've got everything you need. You're great, you're good. He doesn't tell him, don't worry Moses, it's going to be better than you realise. He doesn't kind of say, you're looking at things a bit too negatively. You just need a bit more positivity about it. Those are none of God's responses. God responds saying, you are looking in the wrong place. You're looking at yourself. You're looking at your own inadequacies. Look at me. I am that I am. So we need to kind of take our eyes and look at the living God again to remember, to be given a, the great antidote to fear is looking at the living God. And I want to show you what he has responses. I just want to just say, I think this is a very pertinent word for us now as the people of God for a few reasons. One, we've obviously been through a very introverted season for the last 12 months. You know, naturally this whole season has called us to look in on ourselves and look at our own lives and, we've, and we, miss, we miss this vital part. We, as we think about restoring and being kind of everything that God's called us to be as the people of God in London, in this year, in, at this moment, it's absolutely right that, we, that we, we long for the day that we can enjoy all the great gifts of community, that we, do, that we dream of feasting, and you know, Andrew always talks about the oil growing down his beard. I hope by that point my beard will have regrown, and then I can have some oil growing down my beard. There's... We, we, we speak of that communal life together and we long for that and that's absolutely right. But it's not just that. 
We actually long for the day when the people of God are equipped and sent out in boldness and courage. That is an essential part of who we are as Grace London. And the other reason I think this is really important is because I suspect there is a great amount of unspent potential. In this room, at home, online, men and women who have counted themselves out of the mission of God counted themselves out of being used by God. They've allowed their fears or maybe their guilt or sense of passivity to just remove from them the great joy of being used by God. Maybe some of you already feel what the Lord has laid on your life. You already know what God's called you to, but there's all sorts of reasons why you haven't embraced that. It's just this tragedy. I want to call you to actually, there might be a t- this is a moment where we can say, here I am, Lord, send me. So what does God have to say then? Oh, by the way, I should, yeah, no, let's, let's carry on. What does God have to say? What is God's response to Moses? The first one is God's presence. Moses is concerned whether he's adequate for the task. He's not, we're not, that's the point. But the promise is that God will accomplish his purposes through him. So first of all, we need to start from the beginning. We are inadequate. We are inadequate, he was inadequate. Moses cannot hope to transform the heart of Pharaoh. He cannot hope that he's going to have some sort of 12-step plan of how, Moses, how Pharaoh should reorientate his economy to be able to let the Hebrew, the, the Hebrew people go. No, the whole point of God's answer to him is, I will reshape what Pharaoh's heart. I will humble him. I will bring about this, uh, this great moment. What you've got to understand is when God says to, to Moses, I will be with you, he's not just saying, I will be present with you. And not just saying, I'll be like, you know, like if someone says with you, I'm with you, I'm with you in spirit, you know, go for it. It's not that at all. It's much more than that. This is him saying, I will accomplish my purposes through you. Look at verse 12 when he, in chapter 3. He said, but I will be with you and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. He's saying, the sign that you will know that I am with you is after this is all over, you will be worshipping me on this mountain. Because this is the same mountain, Mount Sinai, where God is going to come and reveal the Ten Commandments and speak to him. He's saying, you will know that I'm with you by the fact that you will be successful on this mission. He's basically saying, because I'm with you, you will be successful. And see, the way you see we didn't read it, but in chapter 3, um, again and again, he gives him All the signs that this is not really Moses' work. This is God's work in Pharaoh's heart. Notice how he says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 20, So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. He's saying, no, I'm the one who's going to humble Pharaoh to the point where he will let you go through my miraculous wonders. And then he goes on, verse 21, and I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty, but each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in a house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. So he's basically saying, not only am I going to um, change Pharaoh's heart and bring him to a place where he lets you go, I will also give you favor. Why? So they have the gold and silver to build the tabernacle. That they, they might have um, everything they need for the task that God's called them to as they wander in the desert. God's got everything they need. What I'm trying to say is, you know Matthew 28, when it says, I will be with you. Jesus sends them out and he says, I will be with you always to the very end of the age. He's not just saying, I will be with you in, 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 in spirit, so to speak. He's saying, I will accomplish my purposes through you. When you have the full vision of the living God and his work in the world, you recognize that you are just a tiny part of God's purposes. 
Salvation belongs to the Lord. What I'm trying to say here is that the, the living God is the one who opens blind eyes. The living God is the one who opens blind eyes. And so many of us operate under a sense of kind of a burden, a sense of uh, kind of almost like, well, I, I could never lead my friends to faith. I could never transform my friends, particularly as we, we see a society that uh, is, is further and further apart from living in Christ's ways. We think, how on earth could I help my friend who's over here who thinks this, that Christ is all and that they should give their life to him? They look at, you see that distance and you think, how could I ever help them see the reasonableness of Christianity and help them to follow him? Well, the answer is, you don't do that. You speak and he opens blind eyes. That he, that he is the one who performs that miracle to transform people's hearts and minds. In, in chapter two, um, 2 Corinthians, chapter 4, he says, For what we preach is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. He's saying the Lord is the one who made his light shine in our hearts. Every time someone comes to faith, it's a miracle. Every time, if you're sitting here and you're not a Christian or you're online watching us and you're thinking, How, I could never be a Christian. You say, no, actually it's God who will open your eyes. God who will bring you to a place of knowing and recognizing him. But we preach Christ. And that's not talking about just um, kind of preaching from the front, from the pulpit. That's a kind of heralding. That's a proclaiming. That's, that's something that we all do with our neighbors and our friends and our colleagues and whoever. But the important thing is you've got to see is that it is God who opens blind eyes. The pressure is off. Success in evangelism is being faithful in proclaiming Christ, of sharing him, sharing the news of who he is, of what he's done in our lives, telling people our stories, It's speaking about him and leaving the results up to God. The burden of responsibility for the salvation of the world does not rest on your shoulders. The living God is the one who will accomplish it, but he will do it through you. He will do it through you speaking about him. And we have the living stones in front of us. We know that this is God's heart because we can look around the room and we can see the lives who've been transformed. I I mean, I won't go into all the gory details, but I I can, looking at some of you, I know your stories. I know where you were. I know when you came to, before you came to faith, your hearts were far from him. I can only speak about myself. 10, 12, 14 years ago, I was uh, walking away from God, no desire to follow him, um, you know, walking in sexual brokenness and desiring to glorify myself and, and be uh, prime minister or whatever. And now God has taken my, transformed my very direction. And, he, and the answer is, it wasn't like you know, someone persuaded me all the way through that. At some point, God opened my eyes. God opened my eyes to his glory. So many of you, you can, and you know that God opened your eyes. So why would we doubt that that is God's heart to open the eyes of the blind? I see this. We're doing the salt course at the moment. I've got a couple of guys in my group, and we've been meeting together for the last seven or eight weeks. And um, as we open the scriptures together week after week, I see God opening their eyes. I see them coming to a place where they go, "Wow, you know, wow, I see Jesus. Wow." I'm, and and you think, there are others in the group where their eyes aren't open; they can't see it. But there are others I can see their eyes are opening. I think that is God's work in their life. By the way, you might think this means you don't speak about him, then you just kind of wait to see where God's work. No, actually, this means you liberally talk about your faith with everybody and anybody. And as you do that, you start to see where, who God is at work in. And there'll be those who just think it's ridiculous and weird. That's fine. But there'll be those where you start, where they just start asking you questions. Or they start just being intrigued. And you think, no, this is the moment where I can respond, where I can see God at work, and I want to engage with him and be used by him to help you come to know him. 
So make us liberal. Do not despair when you see the cultural distance because God is the one who opens blind eyes. Second of all, God's glory. The centerpiece of God's response to Moses in this passage is to reveal to him the very essence of who he is. He says that I am that I am. The great antidote to fear is found in remembering the glory and majesty of God. Moses' question, uh, the second question he asks, feels innocent enough when he says, What shall I say when they ask me, Who is sending you? What is his name? But actually, even that is driven out of fear. I suspect he's worried about what the Israelites are going to say. Remember, these are people in slavery. They're saying, you're going to tell the Pharaoh, the despot, the autocrat, the one who's mistreating us, that we should go. Who's this God who's sending us to basically tell Pharaoh who he is? And the answer is, I am that I am. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. What does this mean? It means God is the one without beginning and end. Elsewhere, this I am that I am could also be translated, I will be that I will be. It's saying, no, God has existed forever. He's the self-existent one. Every other thing in the planet, every other part of creation depends on the living God for its existence. But God alone is the source of all life and existence. Everything else is dependent. Everything else is finite. From dust you came and from dust you will return. But the living God is the one who has existed for all time and will exist forever. He's the one who needs nothing, needs no food, no air, no sleep. He doesn't, he's not like you, dependent creatures, wearing out after you know, an all-night or whatever else you do that, keeps you, uh, that gets you exhausted. No, he's the God who will last forever, who doesn't need anything or anyone. He's like the fountain of life. Imagine a fountain that just never stops. He's the cause of everything. He's the source of all life. By the way, this is what makes Jesus's I am statements so majestic. When Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life, I am um, someone else, I am the true vine, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life. These are statements of sufficiency. I am the I am the good shepherd. I'm the bread of life. Saying, I am everything you need for your existence. And that is what the Lord is. He's the unchanging source of all existence, the fountain of life that never runs dry. Contrast this, and we'll see this as we go through the book of Exodus, that you can contrast this with all the false gods of Egypt. The sun, the sun god, he's not a god, but they think he's a god. No, God will will bring darkness into the land. He will show that he's supreme over that god. God. Pharaoh, who claims to be a deity, Actually, you know, he'll be humiliated. Or the Nile, the source of life for the Egyptians, in some sense treated as a god. No, the living God is superior over him. He'll turn it to blood. Saying again and again, the book of Exodus is about God showing that he is supreme and majestic. And none of these false gods, these rivals, are nothing compared to the name of the living God. And, he, and the Lord is now just revealing that reality to Moses. And he's revealing it to us. In fact, there's even a visual picture of this. He's the burning bush. The fire doesn't consume the bush. It's like the Lord is burning, but he's not using any fuel because he's the one that exists without any need. He's the consuming fire that will never be snuffed out. And it's this reality, when you understand who the living God is, when you see his majesty and his glory, this is the great antidote to fear. Fear that we all experience in all sorts of ways. But in this instance, when we're talking about being used as the people of God, 
this great picture of glory speaks to us in a few ways. First of all, it speaks to us at just the tragedy of what it is to live a life without reference to the living God. If he is the source of all existence, if he's the one who never, who's existed from the beginning to end, he's the, he's the very reason that you exist and he's everything you need, just think about what a tragedy it is to live without reference to him, to ignore him. Think about what a tragedy it is when there's so many around us, so many people have no conception of the great source of their life, the very reason that they exist. So it's, one, it's a sobering call. If you're not a Christian, it says the very essence of your being, the purpose of your life is to enjoy God and worship him forever. He made you and he's so much greater than you are. And, 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 and if you don't know him, you're missing the central reality of your life. So it's sobering in that sense. But it's also a great authority. Notice how he says, I am, has, say this to the people of Israel, the I am has sent me to you. You know how many times so many of you think about being used by God to speak about him to your friends or family or work colleagues or whatever, and you think, well, it's probably a little bit dodgy, a bit inappropriate. The reason why we think that is because we live in a world which says um, all truth claims are power, and so actually when you share your truth, that's actually slightly oppressive, or maybe even just a little bit offensive, that you think you have truth that speaks over into my life. That's, you know, in a postmodern era when it says, no, I need to be allowed to be the person who sets the truth for myself. Heaven forbid that you start with an agenda of wanting to bring truth into my life. That's wrong. To which we say, absolute rubbish. The living God, the great I am, has sent you. You have authority. You have purpose. You have the very permission to do this because it's who, because you've been sent by the great I am. You need not worry about the opinions of others in this way because you have, you've been sent. Think about when Jesus says in Matthew 28, I have all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And then he sends the disciples out. It's not coincidence. He's saying, I am sending you with the authority of heaven and earth. Think about the great Um, permission this gives you to speak into other people's lives. And of course, when you've seen the living God and his majesty like this, all other fears pale into insignificance. When you see his glory, you think, why would I fear flesh and blood? Why would I fear what other people think of me when I've been sent by the living God, by the one who towers over everything, who's the source of all life? It's tragic that we allow other voices, we allow the other opinions of others to blunt us and keep us back in a kind of fear and passivity when actually we worship the living God who stands above every other voice. Think about Matthew 10, when Jesus tells his disciples he's sending them out amongst, as sheep among wolves. He's not unaware of the danger, but he says, do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Do not be afraid of the one who can simply kill you. That's nothing compared to the living God who stands above all and has the authority to send you to hell. Think about how sobering it is to see his, his majesty. So when we see the glory and majesty of God, it reshapes our priorities and helps us to live and, and to pursue this great calling to make disciples in fearlessness. Let's look at Moses' next question. He's worried about power. In chapter 4, Moses is fearful that they won't listen to him. But to which God's answer is, the kingdom comes in power. We need to regain this vision of God's power in mission. See chapter 4, verse 1. But behold, they will not listen to me or listen to my voice. And then, of course, what does God do? Well, he shows him a bunch of little 
kind of mini signs that will prof- that, that go before that will then see the miracles, the full miracles in in the in the plagues. Um, he 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 takes a, he takes the staff and he and the staff uh, becomes a snake and then he takes it takes it over again. Actually, then he takes the lep hand and it gets leprous and then he heals it. And then the third one, he takes a few drops of the water of the Nile and it becomes blood. And these are not incidental. These three pictures are about God's power over any other false gods. You say the, the staff, the snake, it stands for the cobra, the, the Egyptian uh, pharaoh, which was like a symbol in Egypt at the time. The leprosy, it's a disease that cannot be healed in, in, in Egypt at the time. And the Nile, well, the Nile is the source of all life. And every time God is saying, I will show you that I come in power. Power which is above any of the other powers or rulers and authorities of this land. And why, why this is important for us, I think, is because we need to see that our mission to proclaim Christ comes with power. Think about this, the signs and wonders here. The signs and wonders of Christ's ministry. Think about the miracles that accompany his work. Think about the signs and wonders that accompany the book of Acts. Think about the way that the church prays for healing and speaks into people's lives with the prophetic gift or the gift of tongues that um, we see in the, book, in the moment of Pentecost. Again and again, we see that the kingdom comes in power. And the problem is that we have a... Sometimes there's a real danger that we would go back to a kind of powerless Christianity, a, Christian, a vision of the Christian life that lacks any power, that is just words, and to which we say, no, the kingdom comes in power. It means we walk with a certain expectation of God's work in people's lives. It means we know that when we speak, the gospel has power to change someone's life. It means we pray and pursue signs and wonders. That's absolutely part of the mission of God. It means we don't just kind of shrink back in a kind of almost an assumption that God's not really going to move. They're kind of a powerless Christianity or a kind of dead orthodoxy. No, we walk with the expectation that God accompanies his work with power. power and ultimately, the power to change people's lives. That is the, the ultimate miracle that we marvel at. I want to just finally talk about where this all leads. How does this all work its way out? Well, it works its way out in God's final response to Moses. God's ability to use us in our weakness. See, in chapter, at the end of chapter 4, Moses is struck by his own weakness. The very mouthpiece of God has, is slow of speech. and has a, has a, He says, I'm slow of speech and of tongue. And to which we say, no, that is exactly God's pattern. God, all the time, uses weak and inadequate people. That's the point. See his response to Moses. I know you're weak. Then the Lord said to him, who has made man's mouth? Who has made him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? He's saying, I know you're mute. I know you have this. I made you. God always uses people who are weak and inadequate. That's the pattern we see again and again in Scripture. We've talked about Moses, this wonderful irony that the mouthpiece of God has problems speaking. We see it all the time. David, the short, young, youngest brother, is the one who defeats the, the, the Goliath. Or Paul. Look at Paul's ministry. It, obviously, David's has a particular appeal to me, um, given my, my stature. I, I relate well. But the, um, look at even Paul in his life. Paul says that he describes, he says, and I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, were in demonstration of the spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. 
Paul came to them in fear and trembling. Not lofty words, not in any way in kind of human wisdom so that they might look at Paul and go, you're amazing. No, he came in weakness so that God might get the glory. The reason why God delights in using people who are weak and inadequate for the task is because it is the living God accomplishing his purposes. And we are just the, the bit part, just the vessel that God chooses to use. When we look at that, at the, back at the Exodus, when we look back at this great moment in history when God brought the freedom for his people, we won't look back and think, Moses, what a guy, an amazing man. No, this is the man who was fearful, who didn't want to do it. We think, God is the one who had the glory because he uses weak people for his glory so that no one can boast. This is back, uh, again, from 1 Corinthians I was reading. It said, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. No one can look back on their lives and say, what an amazing person I was. God used me in all these ways. And we say, I can't boast. God used me despite my weaknesses. He knows my inadequacies and yet he used me for his glory. What a privilege. What a a miracle in our lives. Think about Peter and John before the Sanhedrin. Their reaction is, who are these common men? They're before the great seat of learning, these men who are are the kind of top of their game in the the Hebrew religion in in Acts chapter 5 or 4. And... uh, and they say, who are these common men? Because they're struck again that these are just inadequate men. How can they? And yet these are the men who turned upside down the Roman Empire, that God used them to transform thousands of lives. This is God's pattern. In fact, I would even go as far to say as God requires a sense of weakness. If you feel weak and inadequate to be used by God, that's a good thing. That's where you start, brothers and sisters. Think about Moses here in this passage. He left Egypt 40 years previously as a man who'd been a kind of prince and and obviously had a kind of measure of swagger about him. When they say to him, who made you ruler and judge over us? They're they're in a sense kind of, they can pick up his pride, I think. In fact, in Acts chapter 7, he describes um, how he supposed they would understand that uh, that he would bring some liberty. So even in 40 years previously, when Moses killed that Egyptian, it's pretty likely that he knows that God going to use him to bring liberty but God's like no I need to humble you I need you to go to the desert and be there for 40 years and to recognize your complete inadequacy before I can really use you just think again and again how that pattern we see that God humbles us he gets us to a place of weakness think about Peter who was this great man of confidence and brashness no God needed to humble him he needed to show him that he was going to betray Jesus three times so when he came back he would walk in humility If Christ calls a man, it requires us to recognize our weakness. And if you feel insufficient for the task that God has called you to, if you worry, if you think, I'm not not anything, you think, no, that's exactly where God wants you. He wants you to operate from a posture of insufficiency. Recognizing your part to play in God's plan, not because you're amazing, but because we worship a living God who is able to use us despite our weaknesses and inadequacies. So do not let your weaknesses prevent you from being used by God. 
So many people count themselves out from service with that voice in their head, I'm not really good enough, or I, got, I look at this stuff I've lived. I remember listening to a John Piper sermon, and he was talking about the, the evils of pornography, and he was talking about one of the great problems with pornography in the church is that actually it blunts a whole generation of young people because they look at their lives and they look at their pattern of sin, and it's not just a problem because it, you know, destroy, it, it destroys life and it doesn't bring flourishing, but because it stops them from going about, about God's business. Because they think, I I count myself out of this. I can't be used by you. Not when I've got this problem in my life. How often we count ourselves out from being used by God. And he says, no, I've got everything I need to use you in your weakness and inadequacy. So I want to conclude and say you are perhaps more incompetent than you realize. The Great Commission is impossible in human terms. But God has sent us out into the world with a commission to speak. Just as he sent Moses out. And the, the way we do that is when we remember the great character of God, that we worship the great I am who has sent us, who has promised us that he will accomplish his purposes through us, that he is in the business of opening blind eyes and he can use us despite our weaknesses. So the question that stands behind this whole story is do you trust God? Do you trust him that he can use you despite your weaknesses? Do you trust him that his presence, his majesty, his power are enough to use you despite your weaknesses? Some of you are already aware of the things that God has laid on your heart, of the callings that God has given you. Perhaps you've counted yourself out from that. Perhaps you've written yourself off. You've said, just like Moses, here I am, is there somebody else? As we respond to this word, I I want to encourage you that wherever you're at on this piece, of being used by God in the other people's lives, it starts with a posture of saying, here I am, God, send me. It starts from a place of a willingness to repent of perhaps counting yourself out of being used by God and instead a willingness to say, God, will you use me for your glory? Here I am, Lord, send me. That is the posture I think God wants from us. That's the posture he wanted from Moses. Here I am, Lord, send me. That's the posture of the people of God. And the ultimate marker of whether we have that is we then, whether we choose to live it out. Obedience is the marker of faith, of whether we believe him, whether we trust him, that he is who he said he is and that he can use us despite our weaknesses. Let me pray for us. The band are going to come up. I want to encourage you, as I pray, just to do your own business with God in this way. There might be a, you might need to repent of fear. You might need to reject certain assumptions that you've made in the past and say, no, God, I want to be used by you. I want to be about your glory. Let me pray. Lord, we just want to thank you that you are the great I am that I am, that you are the source of all life, that you sustain us, that just as Jesus said, I am the good shepherd, I am the bread of life. We come to you now and recognize your all-sufficiency, your power and your majesty. And Lord, we want to repent of where we have not believed your power and your majesty, where we have counted ourselves out of being used by you in the Great Commission or in any other things that you've called us to, Lord. But we want to embrace the callings that you've given us. We want to be a people of God who are about your business. 
even though that feels really hard right now in the season we're in, Lord, we want to pray that you would start to prepare our hearts for this work. Start to lead us out, Lord, in courage and in strength, in the knowledge of who you are, not because there's anything special about us, but because you make a business, a habit of using weak people, of using people who are inadequate for the task for your glory. We thank you that you have a mission and a purpose to make your name famous, to reconcile a world who are walking away from you and to bring them to yourself. And Lord, we thank you for the privilege that you've chosen to use us in that purpose. And we want to be about your business, Lord. So we say, Lord, here we are, send us. Here we are, send us. We are weak and we need your grace. We need your power. We need your spirit. But we we want to reject and repent of fear because we've seen the living God and we worship his glory. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Amen.